If you have a Bible with you, please open it to Joshua chapter 1. We finished the book of Deuteronomy, and, and in the book of Deuteronomy, we talked about how there are those two arcs in Deuteronomy. There is an arc that speaks of the interpretation of the law. We call that sort of the smaller or the inner arc. The major arc was that the promises of God would come true, regardless of the people's dedication to God, regardless of their devotion to other gods and God's curses coming upon them. Nevertheless, God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob would come true. Specifically, it is the gift of the land to them. He has multiplied them. He has made them great, but now he is to give them the land. So it seemed fitting that while that was the overarching point of the book of Deuteronomy, that God would give those people the land, that we then continue in through Joshua and the actual giving of the land to the people of God. Now, given that the emphasis on Deuteronomy was the giving of the land and the conquest of Canaan to the people of Israel, what we might expect when we flip over to the next book, knowing that it's a narrative, is we should expect swords drawn, thrusting and parrying and all that good stuff. We should expect a lot of action, but the book of Joshua doesn't give us any of that. As a matter of fact, the only action that we get comes in chapter 6, or it begins in chapter 6 with the story of Jericho, but there are five chapters before that. Five chapters that have nothing to do with action, have nothing to do with warfare, have nothing to do with conquest. Because there's a major problem that exists at the end of the book of Deuteronomy that is emphasized time and time again in Joshua chapter 1. Moses is dead. He dies outside the promised land and they have buried him in a place that Deuteronomy reports no one knows. But he is dead And there is now a vacuum of leadership at the very top. As they are wanting to go into the promised land, as they are going to be led into the promised land, they now lack a leader. They lack a military leader. They lack somebody who will intercede for them before God. They lack somebody who will bring God's word to them. Moses was the only leader that these people had ever known. While their fathers might have been leaderless in Egypt, these people were born with Moses as their leader. For 40 years, they have traveled with Moses They have known no one else but Moses. Moses was the one who stood before them with God. Moses was the one who gave them the law. Moses was the one who eventually and ultimately judged between what is right and what is wrong for them. Moses was the one who led them in battle. Moses did all of this, and now he is gone. So it makes very good sense that when Joshua begins to take over, much attention is given to the fact that Joshua is the leader that God has chosen. Specifically in Joshua 1, we learn a lot about leadership. This nation has been on the wrong side of the promised land for decades. When they came north from Sinai up to Kadesh Barnea, Moses said, send spies into the land. The spies go into the land. They see that the land is good. They come back, report that the land is good, but then they also tell him, no, we will not go in and take the land because there are monstrous people there, people who will destroy us. This particular generation who will now go in, watch their fathers and their mothers and those who are older than them die off so that they could go in and take the promised land. They are anxious and and wanting to do so, but Moses is now gone. 
any sort of sermon on leadership is always going to be applicable to us, right? I mean, it doesn't take much to know that just as the nation of Israel needed leadership, churches need leadership, people, countries all need leadership. So what is it that makes a good leader? What can we glean from the book of Joshua, not only to show us more about the kingdom of God, but to show us how we ought to be leaders ourselves or what you ought to expect from leaders within the church or leaders anywhere, frankly? Let us read then Joshua chapter 1, and we will talk through four things that this at least shows us about leadership. The book of Joshua chapter 1. After the death of Moses, the servant of the Lord, the Lord said to Joshua, the son of Nun, Moses' assistant, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now therefore arise, go over this Jordan, you and all this people, into the land that I am giving to them, to the people of Israel. Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given to you, just as I promised to Moses. From the wilderness and this Lebanon as far as the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites to the great sea, toward the going down of the sun, shall be your territory. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. I will not leave you or forsake you. Be strong and courageous. For you shall cause this people to inherit the land that I swore to their fathers to give them. Only be strong and very courageous, being careful to do according to the law that my Moses, my servant, Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left, that you may have good success wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous." And you will have good success. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. And Joshua commanded the officers of the people, Pass through the midst of the camp and command the people, Prepare your provisions. For within three days you are to pass over this Jordan and go in and take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving you to possess. And to the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh, Joshua said, Remember the word that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God is providing you a place of rest and will give you this land. Your wives, your little ones, and your livestock shall remain in the land that Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But all the men of valor among you shall pass over armed before your brothers and shall help them until the Lord gives rest to your brothers as he has to you. And also they take possession of the land that the Lord your God is giving them. Then you shall return to the land of your possession and shall possess it, the land that Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you beyond the Jordan toward the sunrise. And they answered Joshua, All that you have commanded us we will do, and wherever you send us we will go. Just as we obeyed Moses in all things, so we will obey you. Only may the Lord your God be with you as he was with Moses. Whoever rebels against your commandment and disobeys your words, whatever you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. This is the word of our God. First thing that we see here is that good leadership needs God. Good leadership needs God. You can go to bookstores if you can find a bookstore. If you find a bookstore, there will be shelves in that bookstore that are dedicated to books on leadership. There is a small, fairly large 
cottage industry of books written about leadership. You will have leadership classes at some point in time. If you are trying to be an executive, they will send you to seminars to teach you how it is that you are to be a leader. It is an important thing for people to learn. What does it mean to be a leader? You need to have a clear vision. You need to be able to communicate that vision to people. You need to be somebody who leads by example. You have to know what it means to compromise, to not give away the essence of what you want, but the, the things that are not essential that you need to be able to faction between groups. You need to get people to buy into what you want. All of these are good, but quite apparently for Joshua, these things are totally insignificant. Joshua has what we would probably think is the most important position in the world. He is now the leader of the nation of Israel as they go to take the promised land. What is it that makes Joshua a good replacement? What is it that makes Joshua and not Caleb or not one of the other elders, one of the other people who have been with them since the beginning? What, what allows him to step into Moses' great shoes? What is it about him that allows him to become the leader that God appoints to his people instead of anyone else? What kind of characteristics did he have that allowed him to be the leader that God would choose to put in a position to lead the people of Israel? And it is quite apparent from the outset that there is absolutely nothing as far as Joshua is concerned that qualifies him for this outside of the fact that God simply chose him. God simply chose him. God looked at him and said, you are the one who will lead my people, Israel, into the promised land. It's likely that Joshua had a, an understanding of the terrible task that was before him. Back in the book of Deuteronomy, as we talked about last week, in, Joshua, in Deuteronomy 31, Joshua goes into the tent of meeting with Moses. Moses has already commissioned him before the people of Israel. Now, both of them go in and they kneel before God, and God opens up his mouth, and Joshua gets to overhear the Lord speaking to Moses. And what the Lord is telling Moses is, I'm going to give you a song, and you are going to get these people to memorize this song because they are going to disappoint me greatly. They are going to leave, they're going to go after other gods, and so you are going to take this song because this is a people who is bent on sinning before me. They are wicked and an evil people, and so they will learn this song so that they will know that I know and I've known from the beginning. Can you imagine being Joshua, overhearing that? Moses is going to die, and the last thing that God tells Moses is this people is wicked, they're hard to lead, they won't listen to you, by the way, here's a song, make sure you teach it to them so that when judgment comes upon them, they will know that they were guilty. By the way, Joshua, good luck, right? And so he turns around in verse 23, and the Lord commissioned Joshua the son of Nun and said, be strong and courageous, for you shall bring the people of Israel into the land that I swore to give them. I will be with you. Already Moses has told him two times in the book of Deuteronomy, be strong and courageous. Joshua is told two times, back to back by the Lord God, be strong and courageous. Even the people recognize the need for Joshua to be strong and courageous. The reason why he can be is because of verse 5. No man shall be able to stand before you all the days of your life, just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. That's the point. That is what qualifies Joshua as a leader. It is simply the fact that God is with him. Moses himself was fearful. 
back in Exodus 4 when Moses was called to take the people out of Egypt. He comes up with a litany of excuses. He says, what will I say? Who will I said sent me? I can't speak very well. And God's answer to nearly every one of them, although he does help Moses with Aaron, his answer to nearly every one of those is, don't worry, I will be there. I will be with you, Moses. I will be near you. I will go with you. This is, quite frankly, the epitome of Psalm 2, which is probably the psalm of psalms. If you were to pick out one psalm that was sort of the pinnacle of the book of Psalms, Psalm 2 might be very close to it. The first six verses read like this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Notice the opening question. Why do the peoples rage and plot in vain? That's not just a a general question about why do they fight amongst one another, but specifically, why do they fight against Israel? Why do they fight against God's people? David writes that, or the author of this psalm writes, that they want to break the power of God's king in Israel. But what does the Lord do? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Notice, please, that in that psalm he doesn't say, I will raise up a king who is mighty and powerful and who can handle all of you. I will have and find a man amongst all the earth who is powerful enough to do what I have called him to do. Instead, what he says is, why do you rage against any of my kings? Because I have set him there. I am the Lord. I am the maker of heaven and earth, and I have put him there. Who can stand against him? Now, we should never, ever think that Jesus isn't somebody of tremendous power and capability. Certainly, he is that. He has tremendous power and capability. His characteristics of a leader are found in spades in him. But nevertheless, one of the chief things that we know of Jesus as a power in him as he goes forward is that he was God's anointed one. He was one whom God was with. That is the point. As Jesus fulfills Psalm 2, he is God's Messiah. He is God's anointed one. What makes him capable as a leader is the fact that God was with him. As Romans 8.31 would say, if God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for Joshua, who can stand before him? One automatically, when they read, when God is for us, who can be against us, should think of Joshua 1 because that's exactly what he says. No man will be able to stand against you because I will be with you. Good leadership needs God. But secondly, Good leadership obeys God. Obeys God. Time and time and time again, he is told, be strong and courageous. And certainly we can understand why Joshua needs to be strong and courageous because he is going to take a land that is filled with fortified cities, that are filled with warriors. Remember, the people that he is leading have been wandering around the wilderness. Now, they've had some battle experience, but it's really small compared to what they are going to be engaging in. Joshua will be leading them into battle. Anyone who has ever studied military knows that great leaders come in one of two varieties, either people who have been under fire before or people who are willing to go under fire with their men. 
So Joshua will need to be strong and courageous because he will have to go into battle. But it's important to know that the strength and the courage that are being talked about here are not primarily about strength and courage and bravery in battle. That isn't the context of Joshua 1 at all. It's easy for us to think that he is to be strong and courageous as he goes into battle because that is where we perceive the lack of courage to come from. How do you face down a sword coming at you? It's terrifying for most of us. But that's not what God is telling him to be strong and courageous about. Read verse 7. Only be strong and very courageous. How? Being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. The courage that Joshua needs is found in being obedient to God. That is where he needs to be strong, and that is how he needs to be courageous. One doesn't, I'll give you a little bit of a preliminary view of what's going to happen. They're going to go to Jericho, and they're going to fight against Jericho, and they're going to walk around the city. That is the battle plan, right? That's not something that people emulate often, right? We're going to blow horns, and we're going to have victory over them. What God is telling him is you need to be strong and courageous and you need to trust in me. You need to do everything that I have commanded you to do. That is where your strength comes from. Good leadership obeys God. Listen, as we went through Deuteronomy, we talked about how Jesus is an example of a new Moses, specifically in the book of Matthew. In the book of Matthew, even at the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus goes up on a mountain, opens his mouth, and talks and speaks about the law to the people. That sounds almost identical to what we get in the book of Deuteronomy. And you can trace even the entirety of Israel's theme throughout the book of Matthew, but it's important that at the end of the book of Matthew, the most important section of the book of Matthew ends with something that is strikingly familiar to what we've got here before us. Mary and Mary, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary, have gone to the the tomb and found it empty. And an angel appears to them and says, listen, go back, tell the disciples to go to Galilee. Jesus isn't going to meet them in Jerusalem. Rather, he's going to meet them in Galilee. And in verse 16 of chapter 28, the 11 disciples go to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when he saw them, they worshipped him, although some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. That sounds a bit like Moses, but it sounds a lot like Joshua. What is he doing? He's standing on a pinnacle looking out on the earth and he's saying, it's not just that the promised land is before you now. The promised land is all of the earth. You are to go and you are to make disciples of all nations. We are going into all of the nations. I have given you authority to do that. And as a matter of fact, as you do it, you are going to go in and you are going to teach them to obey everything that I have commanded you. These people are to be obedient to that command And their obedience comes in teaching others to be obedient as well. Good leadership always obeys God. This is why in 1 Timothy 3.6, when talking about elders, people who are to lead the church, Paul says that he must not, an elder must not be a recent convert or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. What is the condemnation of the devil? Well, he simply was too prideful. 
And he was cast out of heaven because he thought that he could run things better than God. He thought that he deserved the praise and honor that was only due to God. And recent converts, young men in the faith, can easily be led away in conceit and in pride, thinking that they and whatever characteristics make them a good leader are the reasons why God has appointed them over that, and they can become puffed up. And so what does Paul tell them? He says, can't let them be elders. Instead, the idea is that they learn and they are obedient. Anyone who has not been equipped to follow will never be equipped to lead. You have to understand what it means to obey, to lead the people of God. Good leadership obeys God. Thirdly, good leadership trusts God's people. Good leadership trusts God's people. Joshua, man, Joshua knew very well that he didn't need an army to take the promised land. Remember, this is one of the very few people who were left who, as a wee little lad, would have seen the plagues happening in Egypt. He would have seen the destruction of the, Is- of the Israelites' enemies in the Red Sea. He would have seen the boils. He would have seen the fire coming from heaven. He would have seen, or not seen, the darkness upon the land of Egypt. He would have known what God could do. He knows very well that to take the promised land, he doesn't need to step one foot inside the promised land. God could clean them out before him if he so chose. More than that, Joshua knows that he could do it himself, but rather, what does he do? In verses 10 and 11, he goes through the camp and he tells the people, prepare yourself for we all are going to take the promised land. Oftentimes, people are very, very happy to say that they want God to do whatever he will do. But sometimes it's how God chooses to do it that is troubling to them. We don't rely on a few specially gifted people to lead this congregation. We do, in a sense, because the elders are positioned in a way, and we have assigned the elders a position of leadership. But their position of leadership is assigned by you. Ultimately, the leadership of the church is an extension of you as members of this church. We don't think that we have people who can do it the right way and so therefore they can take over control and decide unilaterally what they are supposed to do. Any authority that is given to the elders is given to us by you. Any authority that is invested in me was invested in me when you voted me in. The same thing with Pastor Richard, the same thing with Pastor Doug. We think that God's leadership has been given to all of God's people. All of God's people have received the Holy Spirit. All of God's people have received wisdom and power. And so all of God's people have a hand in what decisions are made within the church. And we will show this and demonstrate this, not simply in word, but with voting in just a couple of minutes. This is the greatest demonstration of God's democracy that has ever been given and the fact that we truly believe that his spirit has been poured out upon all flesh when we go back into that room and we vote on things as a congregation because we don't think that the elders are right and we blindly follow them, but the elders themselves trust the decisions to the congregation to make good and holy decisions. This is exactly what Paul gets at in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 18 through 21. In 2 Corinthians 5, Paul is talking about his position as an apostle. And he says this, From now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once, were regarded, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. 
Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All of this, all new creation is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us, we implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He says Christ was reconciling the world to himself. And how has he chosen to do that? He didn't just send out apostles Paul here makes it seem like those who are actually reconciled are then to turn around and do the reconciling. He reconciles us to give us the ministry of reconciliation. Christ himself has entrusted the prize for which he died to us. That we might, through preaching and teaching of Jesus Christ, reconcile the world to him. Christ entrusts himself to God's people. Therefore, he says, we are ambassadors of God making his appeal through us. If Christ trusts God people, we should as well. We trust that the Holy Spirit is working through us. This is, again, one of the most important things we find in something like John. John, who is higher on Jesus' divinity than any other gospel, and we can so often read the Gospels and read of what Jesus does and think only, man, Jesus is God and he has all these great leadership qualities because he's God and he can do all these wonderful things because he's God. But the Gospels never hold that out. The reason why Jesus does the things that he does in the Gospels is sometimes primarily because he's been anointed with the Holy Spirit and he trusts and listens to God. John continually tells us, why does Jesus open his mouth and say the things he does? Why does Jesus do the things he does? He says repeatedly, because I am the Father's son and the Father has shown me. I only do what the Father tells me to do. I only do the things the Father has shown me to do. So it's not for nothing that John records these words of Jesus in John 16. But I have said these things to you, that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told them to you. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But now I am going to him who sent me. And none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. Concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but for whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus is going away, and he knows that this troubles his disciples. And what does he say? It is better that I'm gone. 
and it's better that I'm gone so I can give you the Holy Spirit. And he entrusts that the Holy Spirit will lead them in sin and righteousness and judgment concerning Jesus Christ. God has allowed the Spirit to come upon his people so that it would be an advantage to us. Good leadership trusts that God's Spirit works in his people and therefore it trusts God's people. Lastly, good leadership unifies God's people. Good leadership unifies God's people. It is interesting that after Joshua talks to these officers of the people, he turns then to these two and a half tribes, the Reubens, Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half tribe of Manasseh. Now, each one of these tribes were given land on the east side of the Jordan. So after the King Og and King Sihon were defeated, before the people entered the promised land, they said, you know, this land looks pretty good. We'll take this. And Moses turns them in anger in Numbers 32 and says this, Shall your brothers, to the people of Reuben and to the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, shall your brothers go to war while you sit here? Will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land the Lord has given them? Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kadesh Barnea to see the land. In other words, Moses is concerned that because the tribe of Reuben and the tribe of Gad want their possession outside of Israel, that the reason why they want their possession outside of Israel is because they lack the courage to go into the land to actually get what God has given to them. And what's more, Moses is concerned that because they're unwilling to, the heart of the people of Israel will melt because they don't have a possession outside the land. And seeds of doubt will be shown in their heads and they will say, well, Reuben doesn't think that we can take it. What chance do we have? Indeed, this is exactly what Moses is thinking because he goes back to Kadesh Barnea when the spies were sent up into the land and they came back and they said, we can't take the land. Let's give it up. Behold, he says in verse 14 of Numbers 32, you have risen in your father's place a brood of sinful men to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. For it, if you turn away from following him, he will then abandon them in the wilderness and you will destroy all this people. If you don't come into the land and fight for your brothers, God will let all of Israel fail. And the people of Gad and the people of Reuben and the half-tribe of Manasseh say, no, we will indeed go in. What Moses is concerned about is the fractioning off of the people of Israel. They will stand together, they will fall together. Joshua then goes to them and reminds them of their promise. And he says, you guys said that you would come in. Your wives, your little ones, your, your livestock can stay over here on the far side, but you cannot. You are to pick up your swords and you are to follow us into the promised land because you are to fight for your brothers. We are to be unified. All of Israel is to go and take the promised land, even those who will exist and will live outside of the promised land. They are all to go in. Good leadership unifies the people. It understands that unity is not just a nice thing that is tacked on, but unity is the central portion of what leadership is to do. There is sort of an unspoken rule in ministry, and it's the 80-20 rule. The 80-20 rule says that 20% of the people are going to do 80% of the work, and 80% of the people are going to do 20% of the work if you can muster them up to do it. While true, it is sinful. 
Christ has called all of us to be involved in the ministry, and he has gifted all of us to be involved in the ministry. This is why the metaphor for the church, although there are many metaphors for the church, the metaphor for the church is that we are a body. That is what we continually call ourselves. We say we are a body of believers. Now, the word body is transferred out of a metaphor, and we just take it as synonymous as being a group, but that's not what it's meant to be. It means that you are literally a body together that you act and walk as a body, as though a body has various parts, they all function together under the direction of the head. That is exactly what the people of God are supposed to be, a body. The liver not doing what the heart does, the heart not doing what the lungs do, the lungs not doing what the hands do, but all working in concord for the good of the body. That is what God's gifts have done for us. Some of your gifts might not be flamboyant. You might not get to stand in front of people and be the center focal point of everything that happens. Maybe all you do is work behind the scenes. God has even given something called the gift of administration in the book of Romans. I can't think of anything less spiritual than administrating. Administration is horrible work. And yet God has, even Paul admits that God has given this as a spiritual gift to people to edify the people of God. Christ has given his spirit to us that we might work together and unify walking forward in this world. God's gifts always promote unity never hierarchy. No one is better than anyone else in the church of God. Good leadership needs God. Good leadership obeys God. It trusts God's people and it unifies God's people. There'd be no doubt Joshua will demonstrate that he is a good leader. He will do the vast majority of what God calls him to do. Although there will be moments of failure. There will be little streams of failure amongst the rivers and the oceans of obedience that Joshua has. And those little pieces of disobedience will flourish in the book of Judges to the end and the destruction of the people of Israel. But Joshua is a good leader, but he is not a perfect leader. He is not the leader that we ultimately need. Thankfully, though, we have another Joshua. We have Jesus, who is a perfect leader, And as Jesus perfectly leads us, we are reminded of his obedience to the Lord, that he didn't just tell us what was good, but that he was found obedient. As the book of Philippians says, he was obedient even to the point of death and death on a cross. He didn't just rely upon his stature as God to show himself obedient, but he was willing to give himself up that he might show us and redeem us from what is dark. 1 Peter 2, 20-25. When you do good and suffer for it, if you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseers, and overseer of your soul. Peter says, listen, Jesus was sinless 
In everything that he did, he was sinless. But one of the things that he was able to do is be obedient in his life. And he laid down his life, even death on a cross, because he entrusted himself knowing that he was sinless, knowing that God would raise him from the dead. He had to entrust himself to God. How much more then should we? Jesus was a faithful leader, giving us everything that we could hope for but could never gain on our own, our redemption from sins. For those who trust in him, there is no longer any condemnation, but we are freed from that by the name and the power of Jesus Christ. So, as Jesus perfectly leads, we're reminded of his obedience to the Lord, how he followed the Lord, knowing that his Father would never leave him or forsake him. He then has entrusted much to us. As he has won a victory, he has entrusted it to us to seal that victory over the nations by preaching the name of Jesus Christ over the ruler of this world. While still sovereign, Jesus has given responsibility to his church to progress his kingdom and to make his name known in the world, to make disciples of the nations that all people may follow him in obedience. We should therefore seek, seek to grow in leadership ourselves. Not simply to have the elders grow in leadership themselves, but to have men raised up from this church to assume positions of leadership, have women raised up in this church to train and lead other women, to be not only leaders in terms of their actions, but also in terms of servants as deacons and deaconesses. We should honor and desire these things, that people continue to take on greater and greater responsibility Because listen, death comes for us all at very odd times. There is no guarantee that any of the elders are going to walk out of this place and come back next Sunday. Therefore, we need to always and honestly be desiring that more leaders be raised up in the church, that more leaders understand what it means to follow these, and certainly for those leaders who have it already, that they deepen their knowledge of the Lord, they deepen their obedience in the Lord, they deepen their desire to serve the Lord in the positions that they have been put in. Christ has entrusted this to his church and therefore he has entrusted it to you. Not to the elders, to you. Therefore, be strong and courageous for Christ will be with you until the end of the age. Indeed, he will hold you fast. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you might be working among us to raise leaders, to sharpen those leaders that you have given to us. Certainly, there is more that we can learn. There is more that we need to do to be good and godly leaders before you. We are sinful, every single one of us. We have the need of discipline among us. We need repentance among us. None of us are outside of that desire, that need. None of us are perfect in your sight. None of us have been made perfect by your will so that we have no need to learn, to grow. Father, we pray also that you will raise up leaders within this church, that there will be people who desire not only to grow in you, but to learn from others so that they themselves might teach others, to continue to mature the body of Christ that we might go out into the world proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ our Lord, fulfilling that which you have given us as a new Joshua standing over his people on a mountain, telling us to go and take the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey all that you have commanded to us. This is what we desire, Father. May your will be done.
In Jesus' name, amen.